0: From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. This episode is part of our Building the Future series. We're focusing on how organizations, researchers, and innovators are meeting our evolving global challenges. We understand the importance of inclusive conversations and have chosen to highlight the work of women on the cutting edge of technological innovation and business excellence. Our topic today is artificial intelligence. Advances in AI and robotics help not just explore the unknown, but surface new possibilities and innovations. And with more and better data, AI and robotics Researchers and organizations have an opportunity to learn from the future, but for the near term, enterprises are taking advantage of current capabilities and technologies to be smarter from manufacturing to beyond. Two words for you, smart robots. My guests are Lan Guan, who is the global lead for data and AI at Accenture, Julie Shaw, is a professor in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She also co-leads the Work of the Future Initiative at MIT. This episode of Business Lab is sponsored. Welcome, Lan and Julie.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
0: Lan, let's start off with you. How would you describe the current state of AI? How are Accenture's customers using it?
2: Sure, uh, let me start by giving you a lay of the land of uh, what's happening in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, but more in the you know, enterprise and uh, industry kind of context. Uh, um, I think from my perspective, AI has been making significant headlines within the last you know two, three, two, three years, right? Uh, and the recent advance in machine learning and deep learning have made it possible to build models, I mean, gigantic models that are capable of automating uh, a variety of human tasks, including uh, what we call the using uh, AI for perceptual data, right? Perceptual data, meaning speech and vision recognition, natural language processing, or even doing reasoning. So it's just uh, incredible to see some of these models Perform at levels higher than what humans are capable of, um, so I think that's uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, also, another uh, thing that I'm I'm seeing uh, AI is no longer just in an uh, assisted mode, uh, but is now playing autonomous roles in robotics, uh, autonomous driving knowledge generation, simulating our hands, feet and, and brains. Um, I think that you know, just AI uh, become very uh, pervasive and then playing this kind of autonomous roles, this is something that I've seen across different industry. Um, but we also recognize AI is still young and data hungry. <laughs> There's uh, still so much more to be done to make it more robust, explainable, And fair, responsible in many, many different ways. Um, Additionally, there's still so many challenges, right? Limitations for business leaders to overcome before we can achieve true artificial general intelligence, where a machine can actually perform any intellectual task that a human can. Um, So I've seen many clients from basically all industries with different maturities approach us. Uh, to uh, uh, implement or advance their uh, AI journey. Some in experimentation and others who are actually already high achievers in in AI. Uh, Let me give you one example. In traditional industries like manufacturing, companies are adopting AI and robots to build smart factories. One uh, digital native clients in e-commerce have asked us to help them provide ultra personalized experiences to meet growing customer tastes and demands. We have even delved into animal precision health with the client where we created models to monitor cow's lactation cycles, predict their milk production based on their genetics, and even project you know, how fast they can reproduce through natural and artificial um, insemination. So very quickly, you know, I gave you examples of how AI become pervasive and very autonomous across multiple industries. Um, This is a kind of a trend that I am super excited about because I believe this brings enormous of opportunities for us to help business across different industries to get more value out of this amazing technology.
0: Julie, your research focuses on that robotic side of AI, specifically building robots that work alongside humans in various fields like manufacturing, healthcare, and space exploration. How do you see robots helping with those dangerous and dirty jobs?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm an AI researcher at MIT in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and I, I run a robotics lab. And the vision for my lab's work is to make machines, these include robots, um, as well as computers, um, uh, smarter, um, more capable of collaborating with people um, where the intention is to be able to augment rather than replace human capability. And so um, we we focus on developing and deploying um, AI uh, uh, enabled robots that are capable of collaborating with people in physical environments, working alongside people um, in factories to help build planes and build cars. Um, And we also work in intelligent decision support to support um, expert decision makers doing very, very challenging tasks, tasks that many of us would 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 never be good at, no matter how long we spent uh, sort of trying to train up in the role. So, for example, uh, supporting nurses and doctors and running hospital units, uh, supporting um, fighter pilots to do to do mission planning. Um, And the the vision here is. um, to be able to move out of this um, sort of prior paradigm um, in robotics, you could think of it as—I think of it as sort of like Era One of robotics, where we deployed robots, say, in factories, but they were largely behind cages, um, and we had to, uh, you know, very precisely structure the work uh, for the robot. Um, uh, then uh, we've been able to move into this next era where we can re- remove the cages around these robots um, and they can maneuver in the same environment more safely, do work um, in the same environment outside of the cages um, in proximity um, to people. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know these systems are, you know, uh, essentially staying out of the way of people and and are thus limited in the in the value that they can provide. Um, You see similar trend with with AI. So um, with machine learning in particular, uh, you know, the ways that you sort of structure the environment for the machine are not necessarily sort of physical ways, you know, the way you would um, with a cage or uh, with setting up fixtures for a robot, but the process of collecting large amounts of data uh, on a task or a process um, and, and developing, say, a predictor from that or a decision-making system from that really does require that, you know, when you deploy that system, the the environments you're deploying it in look substantially similar, are not out of distribution from the from the data that you've that you've collected. Um, and uh, by and large, um, you know, machine learning and AI has previously been developed to solve very specific tasks, not to do uh, sort of whole jobs um, of people. Uh, and to do those tasks in uh, in ways that make it very difficult for these systems to um, to work interdependently with people. So the technologies my lab develops both on the um, robot side and on the AI side are aimed at um, enabling um, high performance in tasks um, with robotics and AI, say increasing productivity, increasing quality of work. Um, while also enabling some greater flexibility and greater engagement from from human experts um, and human decision makers. Uh, and that that requires sort of rethinking about how we uh, draw inputs and leverage, uh, you know, how people structure the world for machines from these sort of prior paradigms involving collecting large amounts of data, involving fixturing and structuring the environment to really uh, developing systems that are much more interactive and collaborative, enable um, people with domain expertise to be able to communicate and translate um, their knowledge and information uh, more directly um, uh, to uh, and from machines. Um, And um, that that is a very exciting direction. It's it's different than developing AI robotics to replace work that's being done by people. It's really thinking about sort of the redesign of that work. Um, and this is something my, uh, my colleague um, and collaborator at MIT, Ben Armstrong, and I, we call positive sum automation. So how you shape technologies to be able to um, achieve high productivity, quality, um, other traditional metrics, while also realizing high flexibility and uh, centering the human's role as a part of that work process.
0: Yeah, Lan, that's really specific and also interesting and plays on what you were just talking about earlier which is how clients are thinking about manufacturing and AI, with a great example about factories, and also this idea that perhaps robots aren't here for just one purpose. They can be multifunctional, but at the same time, they can't do a human's job. So how do you kind of look at manufacturing and AI as these possibilities come toward us?
2: Sure, sure. I love what Julie was uh, describing as a positive sum game, right, of this. uh, This is exactly how we view the holistic impact of, uh, you know, uh, AI, robotics type of technology in uh, asset-heavy industries like manufacturing. Um, So this has been, although I'm not, uh, you know, a a deep uh, robotic specialist like Julie, but, you know, I've been delving into this area more from industry industry applications perspective, right? Because I personally was Uh, uh, intrigued by the amount of data that is sitting around in uh, this uh, 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 what I call the asset heavy industries right amount of uh, you know uh, uh, data in IoT devices right sensors machines and also think about all kinds of data right you know obviously they are not the typical kind of uh, IT data here we're talking about uh, amazing amount of uh, operational technology, OT data, or uh, in some cases also engineering technology, ET data, things like, you know, diagram, you know, uh, piping diagram and and things like that. So so first of all, I think from data standpoint, I think there's just enormous amount of value, um, you know, in this kind of uh, uh, traditional industries, which is, uh, I I believe, truly uh, underutilized. And I think on the on the robotics and AI front, uh, I definitely uh, see the similar, uh, you know, uh, patterns that Julie was describing. Uh, I think the, you know, using robots uh, to in multiple different ways uh, on the uh, factory's shop floor. Um, I think this is uh, how, uh, you know, the different industries are leveraging technology, right, in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, underutilized space. Like, for example, using uh, robots to uh, in the, you know, dangerous setting, right, to help humans uh, do this kind of uh, uh, jobs uh, more effectively. I always talk about one of the, you know, clients that we work with uh, in, uh, you know, in Asia, right, they, they're actually, you know, in the, in the business of uh uh, you know, manufacturing uh, sanitary wear, right? So in that case, glazing is actually the process of applying a, a glazed slurry on the surface of a shaped ceramic. It's, you know, it's a century old kind of a, a, a thing, right? Technical thing that humans have been doing, but since ancient times brush was used and hazardous a glazing process can cause disease in workers. Now, glazing application robots have taken over, these robots can spray the ga- glaze with three times the efficiency of humans with 100% uniformity rate. Right? It's just one of the many, many examples on the shop floor in heavy manufacturing. Now robots are taking over what humans used to do and uh, mm-hmm. robots and human work together um, to, you know, uh, make this safer. For, the hum- for humans and as we're, uh, you know, at the same time, produce better products for consumers. So this is the kind of exciting things that I'm seeing, you know, how AI bring benefits, right, tangible benefits to the society, to human beings.
0: You know, that's um, a really interesting kind of shift into this next topic, which is how do we then talk about, as you mentioned, being responsible and having ethical AI, especially when we're discussing, you know, making people's jobs better, safer, more consistent. Um, and then h- how does this also kind of play into responsible technology in general and how we're looking at the entire field?
2: Yeah, that's a super hot topic, okay? I would say the, the you know, as an AI practitioner, responsible AI has always been top of mind for us. Um, but think about the recent... Uh, uh, advancement in generative AI, uh, I think this topic is becoming even more urgent. Um, so while technical advancements in AI are, you know, very impressive, like many examples I've been talking about, I think responsible AI is not purely a technical pursuit. It's also about how we use it, right? How each of us use it as a consumer, as a business leader. So Accenture, at Accenture, our teams strive to design, mm. build and deploy, you know, AI in a manner that empowers employees and business and fairly impacts customers and society. So um, I think the responsibility not only applies to us, but it's also at the core of how we help client you know, innovate. So as, you, as they look to scale their use of AI, they want to be confident that their systems are going to perform reliably and as expected. Part of building that confidence, I believe, is ensuring they have taken steps to avoid unintended consequences. That means making sure that there's no bias in their data and models, and that the data science team has the right skills and processes in place to produce more responsible outputs. Plus, we also make sure that there are governance structure for where and how AI is applied, especially when AI systems are used in decision-making that affects people's life. So there, there are many, many examples of that. And I think the, uh, uh, given the recent uh, excitement around generative AI, uh, this topic becomes even more important, right? So what we are seeing in the industry is, um, you know, this is becoming one of the first questions that our clients ask us to, to help them uh, get generative AI ready. Uh, and simply because there are newer risks right, newer limitations being introduced, uh, you know, uh, because of the generative AI, in addition to some of the, you know, uh, known or existing uh, limitations uh, in the past when we talk about predictive or prescriptive um, uh, AI. Uh, For example, uh, misinformation, right? Um, You know, your AI could, in this case, could be producing, you know, very accurate result but if the information generated or content generated by ai is not aligned to human values is not aligned to your company core values then i don't i don't think it's working right it could be a very accurate model but we need to, we need we also need to pay attention to potential misinformation misalignment that's one example second example is language toxicity again in the you know traditional or you know existing kind of AI case, when AI is not producing contents, language toxicity is less an issue. But now this becoming you know something that is top of mind for many business leaders. So, which means responsible AI also need to cover this new set of a risk potential limitation to address language toxicity. So, those are the couple of thoughts I have uh, on the responsible AI.
0: And Julie, you discussed how robots and humans can work together. So how do you think about changing the perception of the fields? How can ethical AI and even governance help researchers and not hinder them with all this great new technology?
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I fully um, agree with uh, Lan's comments here and have spent... Um, uh, quite quite a fair amount of effort over the, the past few years on this topic. Um, I recently spent three years as um, an associate dean at MIT building out our uh, new um, cross-disciplinary program in social and ethical responsibilities of computing. And um, this uh, this is a program that has involved um, a very deeply, you know, nearly uh, coming on 10% of the, the faculty researchers um, at MIT. Not not just technologists, but social scientists, humanists, those from the um, the business school, uh, and um, you know um, what what I've taken away is you know first of all there's no there's no codified process or rule book or design guidance on how to anticipate all of the currently unknown unknowns um, and. Um, it, it, there's there's no world in which uh, a technologist or an engineer uh, sits on their own or uh, or discusses or aims to envision possible futures with those within the same uh, disciplinary background or uh, you know other um, uh, other sort of homogeneity in in background and and is able to foresee the um, the implications for other groups and the broader implications of these of these technologies and you know the um, The the first question is what are the right questions to ask? Um, And then the second question is who has um, methods and insights um, to be able to uh, bring to bear on this across disciplines? Um, And that's what we've aimed to pioneer at MIT is to uh, really bring this uh, sort of embedded approach to drawing in um, uh, the scholarship and insight from those in other fields in academia and those from outside of academia and bring that into our practice in in engineering new technologies. And just to give you a concrete example of how how hard it is to even just uh, determine whether you're asking the right question, um, for the technologies that we develop in my lab, we believed for many years that the right question was how do we develop um, and shape technology so that augments rather than than replaces and that's been the public discourse about robots and ai um, taking uh people's jobs um what's going to happen 10 years from now what's happening today um with you know uh well respected studies put out you know a few years ago that you know every one robot you introduce into a community um you know uh, that community loses up to six jobs so um you know what I what I learned through deep engagement with scholars from from other disciplines here at MIT as a part of the work of the future task force is that um, that's actually not the right question, and so um, you know, as it as it turns out, um, you just take manufacturing as an example because there's very good data there. Um, there's uh, it, in manufacturing broadly, only one in ten firms have a single robot, uh, and that's including the very large firms that make high use of robots, like automotive and and, and other fields. Um, And then when you look at small and medium firms, those with 500 or fewer employees, there's essentially no robots anywhere. Um, And there's uh, significant challenges in in upgrading of technology, bringing the latest technologies into these firms. These firms represent 98 percent of all manufacturers in the U.S. And, uh, you know, coming up on um, uh, 40 to 50 percent of the of the manufacturing workforce in the U.S. Um, And uh, there's there's good data that the. Um, that the lagging um, technological upgrading of these firms is uh is a uh very serious competitiveness issue for these for these firms and so um what I learned through this deep collaboration with with colleagues at, at from other disciplines at MIT and elsewhere is that the question isn't how do we address the problem we're creating about robots or AI taking people's jobs but Um, are robots and the technologies we're developing actually doing the job that we need them to do? And why are they actually not useful in these settings? And you have these uh, really exciting case stories of the few cases where these, these firms are able to bring in, implement and scale these technologies They see a whole host of benefits. They don't lose jobs. They are able to take on more work. They're able to bring on more workers. Those workers have higher wages. The firm is more productive. So how do you realize this sort of win-win-win situation? And why is it that so few firms are able to to achieve that win-win-win situation? Um, and you know, there's many different factors, there's organizational and policy factors, but there are actually technological factors as well that we now um, are really laser focused on in the lab in, in aiming to address how you enable those with the domain expertise, but not necessarily engineering or robotics or programming expertise to be able to program the system, program the robot rather than program the task, or sorry, program the task rather than program the robot. Um, and so, um, and it was a it's a humbling experience for me to to believe. I was asking the and engaging in this research and to uh, and really understand that um, you know, the world is a much more nuanced and complex place. Um, and we're able to understand that much better through these collaborations across disciplines. And that comes back to directly shape the work we do and the impact we have um, on society. Uh, and so, you know, we have a really exciting program at MIT training the next generation of engineers to be able to communicate across disciplines um, in this way. And uh, you know, the the future generations will will be you know much much better off for it than the than the training those of us engineers have received in the past.
2: Yeah, I think that's uh, Julie. You brought up such a great point, right? <laughs> Um, I, I think it resonated so well with me. I don't think this is something that you only see in uh, ac- ac- academia's kind of setting, right? The I think this is exactly the kind of change, uh, uh, you know, I'm seeing in industry too, right? I think this, uh, you know, how uh, you know the, um, um, you know, different roles uh, within uh, artificial intelligence space uh, come together. And then work in the highly collaborative kind of way, um, you know, around this kind of amazing technology. This is something that I, 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 I admit I've never seen before. Okay, I think in the past um, AI seems to be uh, perceived as uh, something that only a, a small group of uh, you know deep researchers or uh, deep scientists would be able to do. Uh, almost like, you know, oh, that's something that they do in the lab, right? Even that's a, I think that's a kind of a a lot of perception from my clients. That's why, you know, scale AI, in order to scale AI in enterprise setting has been a huge challenge.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I think with the recent advancement, you know, in foundation models, large language models, all these pre-trained models that, you know, large tech companies have been building, you know, with, uh, and obviously academic institutions are a huge part of this. Uh, I'm seeing more open innovation, more open collaborative kind of, uh, you know, uh, way of working in the enterprise setting too. I love what, you know, what you described earlier, you know, it's a multidisciplinary kind of thing, right? It's a, it's not like AI, oh, okay, you go to, uh, you know, uh, computer science, you got an advanced degree, then that's the, you know, only path to do AI. What we are seeing also in business setting is, you know, um, uh, people, leaders with multiple uh, uh, backgrounds, multiple disciplines within the organization come together as computer scientists, is uh, AI engineers, is, you uh, you know, uh social scientists or even behavioral scientists who are really, really good at defining designing different kinds of experimentation, um, you know, to, to uh play with uh, you know this kind of AI uh, in early stage statisticians, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about uh probability theory, um, uh, ec- uh economists, right? Uh and of course also engineers. So even within uh you know company setting in in the industries, we are seeing more open kind of attitude for everyone to come together, uh, to be around this kind of amazing technology, uh, to all contribute, right? We always talk about hub and spoke model. I actually think that this is happening, and everybody is uh, getting excited about technology, rolling up the sleeves, and uh, bring their different background and skill set to all contribute to this. And uh, I think this is the... Uh, you know, a critical change, cultural shift that we have seen in the business setting. That's why I am so uh, optimistic about this positive sum game that we talked about earlier, which is the ultimate impact of the technology.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, Julie, Lan mentioned her earlier, but also kind of this access for everyone to some of these technologies like generative AI and AI chatbots can help everyone build new ideas and explore and experiment. But how does it really help researchers build and adopt those kind of emerging AI technologies that everyone's keeping a, a close eye on on the horizon?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, talking about generative AI, I you know, for, for the past 10 or 15 years, every single year, I thought I was working in the most exciting time possible in this field. <laughs> and then it just happens again. Um, you know, it's the um the, the really for, for me the really interesting aspect of or one of the really interesting aspects of um generative AI and GPT and chat GPT is one is as you mentioned, it's um really in the hands of the public to be able to interact with it and envision you know a multitude of ways um it could potentially be useful. Um, the um but you know, from the um uh, from sort of the the work we've been doing in, in what we what we call positive sum automation, you know, that that's around um these sectors where performance matters a lot, reliability matters a lot. You think about manufacturing, you think about aerospace, you think about healthcare, and um the introduction of automation, AI, robotics has indexed on that. Um, and um And uh, at the cost of flexibility, Uh, and so you know, a part of our research agenda is aiming to uh, achieve the best of both those worlds. Um, The generative um, capability is very interesting to me because it's it's another point in this space of um, high performance uh, versus flexibility. This is a capability that is very, very flexible. That's the idea of training these um, foundation foundation models. Um, And and everybody can get a direct sense of that from uh, interacting with it and and playing with it. This is not a scenario anymore where we're um, very carefully crafting uh, the, the system to perform at very high capability on very, very specific tasks. It's very flexible in the tasks you can envision making use of it for. Um, and that's 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 game changing for for AI, but on the flip side of that, um the the failure modes of the system are very difficult to predict um so for high stakes applications, you think about um you're you're never really developing the capability of doing some specific task in isolation. you're thinking from a systems perspective and how you bring uh, you know the, the the relative strengths and weaknesses of different components together, you know, uh, for for overall performance. And the way you need to architect this capability within a system is very different than other forms of AI or, or robotics or automation, um, because you have a capability that's very flexible now, um, but also um, unpredictable in in how it will perform. Um, and so you need to design the rest of the system around that, or you need to carve out the aspects or tasks where, uh, where failure in, in particular modes are, are not are not critical. Um, so chatbots, for example, you know by and large, for many, many of their uses, uh, they, they can be very helpful in, in driving engagement, and that's of great benefit for some products or some organizations. Um, but um uh being able to layer in this technology with other AI technologies um, uh you know um, that you know um, uh, that don't have these particular failure modes and layer them in with human oversight and supervision um, and engagement becomes really important. so how you how you architect the overall system with this new technology with these very different characteristics, I think is very exciting and very new. Um, and even on the research side, we're we're just scratching the surface on on how to how to do that. Um, so there's a lot of room for a study of best practices here, uh, particularly in these uh, more high stakes application
2: areas. I, I think Julie, Julie made uh, you know s- such great point that super resonating with me. Um, I think again the. I always, I'm just seeing the exact same thing, right? I love the a couple of keywords that she was using, flexibility, uh, you know, positive sum automation. Uh, I think the, uh, uh, you know, uh, two colors I want to add there, right, I think on the, you know, uh, flexibility uh, front, I think this is exactly what we're seeing, uh, flexibility through specialization, right? Used with the power of generative AI. Uh, I think another term came to my mind is this resilience. Okay, Uh, so now AI becomes more specialized, right? AI and humans actually, you know, become more specialized, you know, and so that we can both uh, focusing on things that those skills or roles that we are best, we're the best at. Um, In Accenture, we just recently uh, published our point of view, uh, generative AI, a new era of generative AI for everybody. Uh, Within the point of view, Uh, we laid out this uh, what I call the ACAP ACAP framework, okay, basically address, um, you know, similar points that Julie was talking about. Uh, So basically, you know, uh, advising, uh, create, uh, advise, create, um, uh, code, uh, and then automate, and then protect. I mean, if you link all these five, uh, the first letter of these five words together is what I call a CAP framework, so that I can remember those five things. Um, but I think this is how uh, you know uh, different ways. Uh, you know uh, we're seeing how AI and humans uh, working together manifest right this kind of collaboration in different ways. For mm-hmm. example, advising, right? It's pretty you know uh, uh, obvious. You know with generative AI capabilities, uh, I think chatbot example that Julie was talking about earlier, now imagine, right? Every role, every, you know, knowledge worker's role in organization will have this co-pilot, okay? Running behind the scene in contact center's case, could be okay. Now you're getting this uh, uh, generative AI doing auto summarization of the uh, agent calls with customers at the end of the calls. So the agent don't have to be spending time and doing this manually, and then customer will get happier because you know customer sentiment will get better detected, right? By generative AI, create right. Obviously, there are numerous you know, even consumer-centric kind of cases around how human creativity is getting unleashed, right, you know, now generative AI is uh, making a war waning our pieces, right, so, and, and there's also business examples in marketing, in hyper-personalization, how this kind of uh, creativity by AI is being best utilized. Um, you know, the, I think the, the ultimate automating, again, you know, we've been talking about robotics, right? So again, how robotics, robots and humans work together to take over some of this mundane tasks. But if, even in general, the AI's case it's not even just the blue collar, right? Kind of jobs, more mundane tasks, also looking into more mundane routine tasks in knowledge worker space. I think that's uh those are the couple of examples that, you know, I have in mind when I think of the word of a flexibility through specialization. And by doing so, right, new roles is going to get created, right? Uh, uh, you know, from our perspective, we've been focusing on prompt engineering, right, as a new discipline. Uh, you know, within the AI space, AI ethics specialist. We also believe that this role is going to take gonna take off very quickly, simply because responsible AI topics that we just talked about. Um, and also because the you know all these business processes have become more efficient, um, you know, more optimized. We believe that new demand. Okay, not just the new roles, each company, right? Regardless what industries you you are in, right? If you become you know, very good at you know, mastering, harnessing the power of this kind of AI, the new demand is gonna create it, right? Because now your products is getting better. You pr- you're able to provide better experience to your customer. Your pricing is gonna get optimized. So I think bringing this together is, which is my second point, okay, this is, will bring positive sum to the society, you know, um, in eco- economics kind of terms where we're talking about this now, you're pushing out the pr- production possibility frontier for the society as a whole. So I'm very optimistic about all this uh, amazing, you know, aspects of, uh, you know, flexibility, resilience, specialization, and also uh, generating more economic profit for the for the society, economic growth for the society kind of aspect of the A.I., as long as we walk into this, you know, with eyes wide open, so that we understand some of the existing limitations, uh, I'm sure we can do both both of them.
0: And Julie Land just laid out the fantastic, really correlation of generative AI as well as what's possible in the future. What are you thinking about artificial intelligence and the opportunities in the next three to five years?
1: Yeah, yeah, um so I I think Lan and I are are very largely on the same page on you know just just about all of these topics which is um really great to hear from the you know the academic and the um the the industry side. Um the you know for for me um I you know in, in terms of there's you know sometimes it can feel as though, you know, the emergence of these technologies is just going to sort of steamroll and, you know, work and jobs are going to change in some predetermined way because the technology now exists. Um, but we know from the research that that the data doesn't bear that out, actually. <laughs> There's many, many decisions you make um, you know in uh, in how you um, design, implement, and um, deploy and even make the business case for these technologies that can really sort of change change the course of um, of of what you see uh, in the world because of them. And um for me, you know i'm i'm, I'm I really think a lot about this question of, um, uh, what, what's called sort of like lights out in manufacturing, like lights out operation, um, where th- there's this idea that you would you would you know, with the advances and in, in all these capabilities, you know, you would aim to be able to run everything without people at all. So no, you don't need lights on for the people. Um, and um, again, as a part of the work at the Future Task Force and, and, and the research that we've done, visiting. Um, Companies, uh, manufacturers, OEMs, suppliers, um, large international or multinational firms, as well as uh, small and medium firms um, across the world. You know, the um, the research team asked this question of um, to kind of these uh, these high performers that are that are adopting new technologies um, and doing well with it. You know, where where is all this headed? Is this headed towards a light fac- lights out factory for you? Um, and there were a variety of answers. So some, some people did say, yes, we're aiming for a lights out factory. Uh, but actually many said, no, that, that that was not the end goal. And and one of the quotes, one of the interviewees uh, stopped while giving a tour and turned around and said, a lights out factory. Why would I want a lights out factory? A factory without people is a factory that's not innovating. And I think that's like the core for me, the core point of this Um You know, when we, when we deploy robots, are we caging and sort of locking the people out of that process when we deploy AI is essentially the infrastructure and data curation process, you know, so intensive that it, that it really locks out the ability for a domain expert to come in and understand the process and and be able to engage and innovate. And so, for me, you know, uh, I think the the most exciting research directions are the ones that enable us to pursue this sort of human-centered approach to adoption and deployment of the of the technology, and that enable people to drive this innovation process. Um, So, factory, you know, there's a well-defined productivity curve like you don't get your assembly process right when you start that's true like in any job or any field like you don't you never you never get it exactly right or you optimize it to start but it's a, a very human process to improve um and how do we develop these technologies such that we're, we're maximally leveraging our human capability to to innovate and improve how we do our work um and I and you know my my view is that by and large, the technologies we have today are really not designed to support that, and they really impede that process in a number of different ways. Um, but um, you do see uh you know increasing investment and exciting um capabilities um, uh, in which you know you, you you can engage people in this human-centered process and see all the benefits um, from that. And so for me, on the technology side and shaping and developing new technologies, I'm Uh, I'm most excited about the technologies that that enable um, that capability.
0: Excellent. Julie and Lan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really fantastic episode of the Business Lab.
1: Thank you so much for, for having us. Thank you.
0: That was Lan Guan of Accenture and Julie Shaw of MIT, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Giro Studios. Thanks for listening.